This is the L2 Capital Podcast with Hedge Fund Manager Marcelo Lopez. The L2 Capital Podcast focuses on potential opportunities in the market and brings to your industry leaders and an intelligent conversation about their respective areas of expertise. And now, here's your host, Marcelo Lopez. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the L2 Capital Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about our preferred subject, uranium. And to talk to me today, I have Brandon Monroe, the CEO of Bannerman Resources. Brandon, it's been a while since you and I talked on this podcast. So welcome again. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Marcelo. It's good to be chatting again on air. Now, um, there are three subjects I would like to discuss with you today. The first one, the Russian suspension agreement. The second one, the Iran waivers. And the third one, the result of the nuclear fuel working group. I know all of these subjects are relatively old, but I believe the good news is that we now have had more time to think about them thoroughly. So, uh, Brendan, let's kick it off with the Russian suspension agreement. Great. So perhaps um, we can start with a little bit of background, Marcelo. Sure. And I, I, I actually have a direct question, but if you if you would like to explain to us what, what the RSA is, even better. Okay, sure. It, so the RSA, it stemmed from an anti-dumping action brought against import of Russian uranium after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And uh, in 1992, the effect of the Russian suspension agreement was su to suspend the underlying anti-dumping investigation. So this happens quite a bit in the US. There's a dumping probe and there's a solution that's implemented rather than fully answering the question of whether there has been dumping and whether measures are required. And hence the word suspension. So for a lot of people, that might resolve a little bit of confusion in their mind. The way it worked was quite interesting. The dumping allegations focused on natural uranium. However, the agreement that's currently in place focuses more on the sale of enrichment um, because your regular listeners would be well aware that uh, Russia dominates the enrichment market. It has um, what many argue is the most efficient technology, and it also has the lion's share of the market in terms of any single nation. And so what it effectively does is it limits the amount of uranium-235 that can be imported into the U.S., And it says that it must be no more than 20% of U.S. demand. So the Russian vendors, they can mix and match to a certain extent whether they uh, use that uranium-235 calculation to impute a quantity of separative work units, which is SWOOs, or the unit by which enrichment services are calculated, or they provide the back-calculated quantity of natural uranium, or they can provide enriched uranium product, for example. So there's a bit of a calculation involved, but the key number really is 20% of US demand. And interestingly, conversion is not covered by the Russian suspension agreement, um, which has also made things a little bit tough in the past for Convenine and Cameco <laughs> to compete. Sure. So I guess the other key point of background is this agreement is, which was a bilateral agreement with Russia, expires under its own terms at the end of this year, so 31 December 2020. And as we're getting closer to that, I think that's what has now created the renewed interest. Sure. Now, uh, countries like Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan were also subject to the original um, agreement, the, the original ban, actually, I should say. But they were later exempt from it, and Russia was the sole country that remained with the 20% ceiling. 
Now, today, Russian uranium exports to the U.S., and, and including the enriched products and all that, are lower than 20%. No harm done there. So, in your opinion, what is really the problem here? I've heard a few times already from my contacts in the U.S. that some U.S. utilities have already procured over 20% of their uranium needs from next year onwards from Russia to take advantage of the low price. So if this suspension is still in place next year, these U.S. utilities will be uncovered and they will have to go back to the market to get this uranium that they thought they had. What are your views on that? Well, you're quite right. And your your contacts are obviously very well placed, Marcelo. Well, well done. <laughs> For example, 10X does have contracts out beyond 2020 with U.S. utilities. And one of the focuses for 10X in this whole process is to try and ensure that those uh, existing contracts are grandfathered, regardless of what the outcome is with the Russian suspension agreement and, um, and an extension. We're also seeing some commercial drivers at play. So LES, which is Urenco, uh, the enrichers that are situated in the US, although not US owned, they've been agitating for some time trying to extend the trade restriction um, to make sure that the Russians can't fill in more than the 20%. And uh, as you've probably seen in the news, there's been some bipartisan uh, support for the concept of not only extending, but seeking to further reduce Russian participation in the US market, which is driven by geopolitical tensions between the US and Russia, and also helps to support some of the uh, rhetoric that uh, was articulated in the Nuclear Fuel Working Group report that the Department of Energy released last month. So I think it's both commercial factors and also political factors that are at play. Now, of course, from a utilities point of view, they want to keep as many options open as possible. And when you talk directly to the utilities, they've, they've really had no problems dealing with any of the Russian entities. They've always been very reliable vendors of their product. Um, as I think many would be aware who follow the nuclear industry, Russia is in many, many respects the leader in civilian nuclear applications and nuclear power. And and what the utilities don't want to see is they, they don't want to see their access to well-priced, reliable enrichment services and uranium coming to an end. If the suspension agreement isn't extended, then that means there are no restrictions, although there is the risk that that 1992 anti-dumping case might be reopened, which then opens a number of alternative measures that the government can take. Um, so it's that uh, potential for the restrictions to be lifted altogether by the terms of the expiring agreement that has Urenco and other competitors concerned and obviously lobbying heavily in Washington at the moment. Got it. Listen, uh, Brandon, that is all very interesting, but I would like to bring to this conversation the Corfu Agreement, uh, actually the declaration of Corfu as it's known. Uh, this declaration also tried to put a cap on Russian exports, this time to the EU, with really no, no real results. Just for the ones who don't know, the declaration of Corfu stipulated that the share of European uranium enrichers 
should be maintained at around 80% of the European market. So the Russians very wisely have raised the WTO rules and created confusion about the existence of the 30% quota for all energy products imported into the EU. Because uh, new members of the EU were also ex-Soviet countries, the EU had to accept larger quotas for the Russians. To be fair to them, and you've just mentioned this, I speak to many few buyers in Europe and they all only sing praises to the Russians. So what's your take on that? Do, do you think this kind of agreement is only a bargaining power dispute or, or do the US really mean that? I think Europe has an additional level of complexity, politically in particular, and that is that there's many states that have argued with potentially some justification that Russia has used energy as a leverage point in achieving its political objectives. And I think the Ukraine a few years ago would be the best example of that, which not only gave Russia leverage against Ukraine, but also disrupted gas supplies into a European winter. So politically, it goes back and deepens the argument significantly over some of the commercial arguments that we have in the US. And interestingly, those political arguments have even obtained some political support in the US, where, for example, we've seen moves within Congress or bills before Congress to try and impose sanctions on the Russian Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. So it is a deep issue within Europe. And you're right, that uh, 20% limit doesn't hold. I think the last statistics off the top of my head that I saw is that uh, Russian enriches into Europe or Euratom's uh, member states as a whole sits at about 33%. And traditional reliances on Russian technology by, for example, Czech Republic, who operates seven reactors, that ends up lifting the numbers significantly. And whilst uh, it makes commercial sense for uh, Chez, the operators of those reactors, to try and wean themselves off Russian technology and have more competitive options available to them. It's not as simple as that, particularly when the product that they're getting uh, is perfectly fine, as you say. So it's a complex situation in Europe, both commercially and politically. And what it comes down to, again, is that the utilities, uh, their preference is to see open trade where they can obtain the, the best deals. Sure, sure. Brendan, you touched on this subject uh, when you were answering the first question, but I would like to go a little bit deeper. So uh, because of its energy density, uranium can be mined in Uzbekistan, for instance, can be converted and enriched in Russia, then fabricated as fuel in Sweden, and enter the US. How does the government keep track of the origin of the material? So there's quite extensive security safeguards provisions that the IAEA manages, and they form um, important non-proliferation treaty obligations, including under the second protocol. I think all of those states that you've just mentioned are signatories to. So the original origin of the uranium is traced. It does become a bit difficult when you're going through a particularly a conversion or an enrichment process where uh, those particular atoms are mixed up with other material. Um, so it's not traced with 
uh, let's say, a scientific degree of certainty. But nonetheless, the quantities can all be measured and it can be uh, accurately retained on a ledger throughout that process. And that's a process that's been going on for really quite some time because of non-proliferation concerns and all of the powers that the IAEA has and that the member states and signatories are expected to enforce. Sure, sure. Thanks. Um, now, let's move on to the Iran waivers. So back in 2015, President Obama signed this nuclear accord with Iran, in which Iran agreed to cut its stockpile of uranium, reduce by about two-thirds the number of its centrifuges, and uh, only enrich uranium up to 3.67%, I believe, amongst other things. In return, Iran would have received some relief in regards to the sanctions. Now, a couple of years ago, the U.S. withdrew from the Iran nuclear deal, but granted some waivers. I believe the first waiver was withdrawn last year and the other three was withdrawn last month. So could you please explain these waivers and the implications of this uh, U.S. decision to the uranium market? Sure, Marcelo. And why don't we go back a step? Because this will help with people's reading and getting hold of some of the terminology. So you're quite right. In 2015, the background was Iran was alleged to have been developing its nuclear weaponry capability. And so the UN had imposed a range of fairly crippling sanctions against Iran to force them to the negotiating table. And what emerged from that was it's commonly called the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. And the US, as you say, and Iran were signatories, but it was also um, signed by the United Kingdom, United States, China, Russia, France, and Germany. And it obtained those concessions and those restrictions that you mentioned, and in return lifted the, uh, first of all, lifted the sanctions on Iran so that they could carry on with that raft of sanctions being suspended, not eliminated. And the second thing it did is uh, ensure that European, Chinese and US companies uh, could assist Iran in certain specified ways with its various nuclear facilities and nuclear programs. So the waivers that you talked about that were introduced after President Trump withdrew unilaterally from the JCPOA in 2018, they were to ensure that the companies and states that were assisting Iran in that way that I mentioned did not fall foul of U.S. sanctions against Iran. So the waiver was really not for Iran, but for the U.S. companies and European and other companies, Russian, Chinese, and so on, uh, who were providing that assistance. Now, that's very important in this context because when you've got, for example, Rosatom, the Russian giant we've just been talking about, uh, they're a dominant leader in pretty much every aspect of the nuclear fuel cycle. Uh, they're significant miners of fresh uranium all the way through to being leaders in the disposal and safe retreatment of nuclear waste and slightly irradiated tails and so forth. So they've got the entire value chain well covered essentially within one state-owned conglomerate, part of which assists Iran, um, in particular at the Bashir nuclear power plant, which Rosatom is building. So if they fall foul of the US sanctions that are imposed on um, companies assisting Iran's nuclear power program, they won't be able to offer 
any form of nuclear power services into the US, including the enrichment that we were just talking about, or the EU for that matter. So this is a very, very important development to follow. The different types of facilities varied. So in November last year, as you mentioned, Marcelo, the Fodor enrichment plant uh, had its waiver lifted or it wasn't extended. Um, now, that was an easy one for the US to do politically because our photo had, it was an enrichment plant that was originally geared up to provide military grade enrichment. It was built in a mountain, so it was very James Bond uh, in its <laughs> approach. And uh, it had been reconfigured as a research reactor and for producing medical isotopes. Now, at the time when the sanctions waivers weren't extended on that facility, uh, Russia announced that it stood by Iran. Um, it uh, reiterated the view that is held fairly commonly amongst all of those parties that the US withdrawal unilaterally was in fact illegal. And uh, they said they would continue to support Iran. And then a couple of weeks later, they said, but technically the new enrichment activities that were uh, that Iran was planning on trying to take rendered their medical and research enrichment uh, technically unfeasible. So they would have to withdraw on those grounds. So there was quite a neat withdrawal by Russia whilst saving face at that time. Mm -hmm. um, now, the only nuclear facility in the mix in Iran that seems to be extended at least for another 90 days is the Bushehr nuclear power plant, which is a conventional VVER nuclear power plant being built by Russia. For now, it uh, seems that the lifting of the waivers on the other three facilities uh, doesn't seem to be worrying the EU and the US utilities too much. What we really need to watch, though, is firstly, if the sanctions waivers are not extended in 90 days on Bashir, well, that really puts the cat amongst the pigeons in a very significant way. And the other thing is just the, the whole nature of escalating tensions, in particular with Russia, and what will be the effect and what will be some of the flow-ons from this latest move from uh, Mike Pompeo and the Trump administration. Sure. But wouldn't the Americans be shooting themselves in the foot if they restrict material from Russia? If, let's say, Rosatom is under any kind of um, uh, restrictions or, or sanctions? Well, they would. And I think they're well aware of that. And the administration has received undoubtedly a very effective lobbying from the US utilities. And this has been an issue now, quite an acute issue for more than six months. So in that time, the administration has had the opportunity to, to well understand the implications both bilaterally, but also in terms of the effect on the US utilities. So clearly that's what's driving their decision to keep Bushehr nuclear power plant out of the crosshairs here. And hopefully, I think for the stability of the industry and also the stability of the region, we will see those waivers continue to be granted. But 90 days from now takes us that, that little bit closer to the US presidential election at what is quite a dynamic time in US politics right now. So I don't think we can take anything for granted uh, sure. in respect of this issue. Sure, I agree. Now, uh, this year has been very eventful for uranium. I'm not going to list everything that has happened, but a few important things are worth mentioning, like uh, the crossing of the $30 psychological barrier, which, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you came up with. Uh, Cigar Lake was put into carrier maintenance together with a few other mines, um, 
the U.S. budget is putting aside a, a $150 million on a program to buy uranium from U.S. miners, for which uh, we have no details so far. And, uh, and the most expected news, which was actually the only one that uh, was expected, the final report from the Nuclear Fuel Working Group. So, uh, Brendan, I know it's a lot to talk about in, the, in one podcast, and they were all important events, but I would really like to hear your thoughts and opinions about the Nuclear Fuel Working Group and how it will impact the uranium market going forward. Sure, I'd love to comment on that. As everyone who's followed the sector knows, the Section 232 trade investigation has been long running. Uh, it was initially petitioned at the beginning of 2018 and took six months to actually be picked up by the Department of Commerce. Then they had the best part of a year to deliver their report, which they took. And out of that was established the Nuclear Fuel Working Group, which after several delays, uh, eventually provided the outcome of that, which is the report that you refer to published by Department of Energy last month. Um, when the report finally came out, I think the most significant thing is it put an end to that two-year process, which has created a lot of uncertainty, not only for uranium investors, but certainly for the uranium utilities, the nuclear utilities who are buyers of uranium. Um, in the US, during the process of the Section 232 investigation, they had a very real prospect that there might be quotas or tariffs imposed and that acted as a dampener on their willingness to enter into long-term contracts for fear that the scenario that we've just been talking about, in other words, the 10x and uh, Russian contracts beyond 2020, might come to bear in respect of uranium purchases. They didn't want to enter into a contract and then be found that for quota or tariff reasons, that was no longer viable. So the market was really looking to this working group report to provide closure, which I think it has on the issue. And particularly investors in some of the US uranium producers were looking for action. And that's where there was a little bit of disappointment. I thought it was a very strong policy document. I thought I was quite surprised by how direct the rhetoric was. Uh, it was certainly willing to call a spade a spade in terms of accusations about the Russian and Chinese foreign policy objectives of their nuclear power export expansions. And I think gave a very honest appraisal of where the US had lost its way and lost its leadership position in what's becoming really the most critical form of energy from both a geopolitical perspective and also from a, a environmental and climate perspective. And the rhetoric set out a number of things that the US would need to try and achieve to regain that leadership, which was the primary objective. There wasn't an awful lot on uranium, and that's not surprising because when the Section 232 results were handed down, there was clearly scope increase so that the working group would consider all of the nuclear fuel cycle and the role of nuclear fuel services within the broader US industrial complex. So that was to be expected, although not all uranium investors were happy to see a uranium take the sort of the back row at the stadium when it was uranium producers in the US that had brought on the investigation in the first place. So to answer your question, what does it really mean? Well, we've seen action already come out of that rhetoric. So as a policy document, I'm not sure it could have been that much stronger than what it actually was. And we've seen bills to lift restrictions on uranium mining and mining of other strategic commodities go before Congress. We've seen 
uh, a number of financing initiatives come out of the US government to try and promote SMRs, small modular reactors in the US and other types of nuclear technology. And whilst that movement has been ongoing since when Senator Perry was in charge of the DOE, they've been careful to link it all back to back up that rhetoric that's in that particular report. So I think it's positive because it's put a line under the two-year saga that was the Section 232 process. And uh, it's also positive because it's created a new entrant, or we should say re-entrant, into the global competitive nuclear power landscape that was starting to look like being a two-horse race between Russia and China, with the US and France and perhaps South Korea limping behind, uh, trying to fix some of their wounds with Band-Aids on the run. Whereas now the US has clearly stated in its uh, in this report that it wants to tackle Russia and China head on. And let's wait and see what France does from here. could get really interesting if they decide to try enter um, the race and re-establish their first tier attributes in the nuclear power game. Brilliant. Uh, in regards to, to uranium price going forward, Brandon, actually, let me go one step uh, back here. Uh, it's, it's actually interesting that I, I talk to traders and they just cannot find material at the moment. And you and I have talked about this before. There's a lot of material available until there's not. As prices go up, material just disappears, as uh, some market participants are finding out now in the hard way. <laughs> the, the only place um, in the West that is seeing some real activity is Port Hope. Uh, Converdine and Comrex is just uh, inventory churning amongst uh, traders. And I've actually heard uh, uh, of a couple of traders that were caught short recently. So what are your expectations for uranium uh, on the second half of this year? So in general, I think the setup's very strong. Uh, we have only seen a small proportion or, or a proportion of the supply disruption so far this year that's been caused by COVID. So the reason why I say that is we're only a couple of months into the indeterminate suspension of Cigar Lake. And that could easily run for several more months. So we've just scratched the surface, you could say, in terms of the market impact of those pounds um, not being produced. But more importantly, in Kazakhstan, the nature of their in-situ recovery mining means that there's about a three-month lag between them ceasing wellhead development, which is what they've done for an estimated three-month period, and actually seeing that uranium disruption start to hit their final product room. And for, for listeners who don't understand ISR that well, that's because what you do with a um, in-situ recovery well field is you do your wellhead development and you, let's say, get the pumps running. And it, it's what you're uh, producing today that results from your investment in wellhead development, say, three or four months ago. So there's a lag effect there. So that hasn't affected the market or the commercial deliveries under that market. Um, the other thing about it is both Cameco and potentially Kazatomprom will need to buy pounds in the market as they run down their remaining commercial inventories. And Kazatomprom said in an interview on, I think it was May the 22nd, that uh, they are willing to run down their inventories below the, the optimal six to seven months of production that they like to obtain but implied quite strongly, or um, CEO Permatov implied quite strongly, that if their 
production reductions, uh, their de-staffing and their suspension of wellhead development. If that process goes longer than three months, then they will need to buy in the market. So from a supply side, we've got tightening that the market isn't really feeling at the moment, but it will feel in the second half of the year. And from a demand side, we've had utilities who by and large have been very distracted by COVID. When you look at particularly Western utilities in Europe and the US, um, many, many of those utilities have really been in the thick of COVID responses and lockdowns and so on. So the timing just hasn't been good for focusing on procurement. For many of them, it's come during their uh, traditional outage period when they refuel and um, they like to do that on the shoulder seasons because in summer you generally need more electricity for air conditioning and in winter you definitely need it for heating um, so it's been very disruptive from that point of view so my understanding with the utilities that I talk to is that it's been all hands on deck for that and the capacity to get attention from fuel buyers finance groups risk management committees etc etc for re-procurement just hasn't been there uh, sure. I think we'll hopefully we'll have COVID-19 under better control or at least better understood um, towards the latter part of the year when the utilities have the opportunity to take action. So for those reasons, I think it's a very strong setup for the latter part of this year. Um, there are a few risks to that or risks to the consistency of that. And we have seen uh, uranium price stabilizing for a week or so, ticking back up, coming back a little bit more. Um, so it hasn't maintained the initial momentum that it had when it did push through $30. And that's largely just through lack of liquidity. Um, you're quite right, Marcelo, the traders are struggling to get hold of material. Um, but there are there is a capacity for paper trades. So for sure. example, a trader who might have picked up material quite cheap um, either at the end of last year or the beginning of this year, um, one of the inadequacies of the uranium spot market is it's not an instant delivery market. In fact, it can be for a future delivery of anything up to 12 months out. So there are producers who will sell into spot material that they haven't yet mined. And those traders, if they've agreed to take delivery in, let's say, August or September this year, and they've picked that material up at $24, it's going to look like a fantastic paper return on that material if they haven't already unsold it. So they will have the opportunity to flip that out. And uh, if um, what you're hearing about some of those traders getting caught short um, is in fact true, then they're going to be very incentivized to flip that out and perhaps lock in the sort of prices we've got now. So it will be choppy. There's no question that a number of players on the periphery, including traders, are experiencing some stresses from the financial ramifications of COVID-19. But certainly the fundamentals, I think, are strong enough that the upward trend clear. And we will see an interesting, if not exciting time in this sector in the second half of the year. Absolutely. I agree with you, Brandon. And if you just allow me, I would like to, to make a couple of comments here. Uh, one of them in regards to Cigar Lake. And uh, I think uh, it, it makes commercial sense for, uh, for Chemical to bring back Cigar Lake now. They, they already lost uh, MacArthur River. They already lost Inkai. And uh, I'm sure that it, it might not be super good for the market, but it will be good for Chemical. And to be honest, it's not that uh, Chemical will overflow the market with the production from Cigar Lake because those pounds are, are sold already. So yeah, I, I don't see a, a big impact on on that side. Um, in in uh, again, it's it's my view in regards to utility. 
utilities, I agree with you. They are not worried about procurement at the moment. But um, I noticed a couple of uh, uh, RFPs uh, last week, but uh, little ones. I, 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 I believe they might be testing the market. And uh, last but not least, I know there's material coming uh, to the market at the end of this month and uh, next month. So as you know, traders will try to push down prices a little bit, but I think it's going to be just a blip in, a, in an upward market from here to the end of the year my opinion and we will see those blips and we're we're seeing them as you point out with the discrepancy between convidine slash comorex delivery and port hope delivery um and because of the lack of genuine liquidity at uh, comorex and convidine it does create opportunities for the traders to impact that market um so it'll be interesting to see if we if that arbitrage between port hope and the other facilities starts to close um yeah really I, I, I think it that w- that's going to happen is through liquidity I, I i think it will but i think the other two will converge up to be honest but we'll see brandon listen once again many thanks for coming to this program and talking to me it's always a great pleasure and, and very insightful to talk to you oh that's a real pleasure marcelo and you you bring so much more to the conversation than you prepared to give yourself credit for with all that research and all of those conversations so Thank you on behalf of the industry for your guiding light. It's really been fantastic watching your other podcasts. So I've enjoyed it and everyone else does as well. Thank you, Brandon. And I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Cheers, Marcelo. If you like this podcast, feel free to forward it to your friends and colleagues. We appreciate your time, support and your feedback. You can follow Marcelo Lopez on Twitter at MALopez1975. The information presented here is not investment advice and should not be taken as such. You should do your own due diligence and consult with your financial advisor before doing anything suggested or mentioned in this podcast. L2 Capital and its partners will not be liable for any losses that occur in doing whatever is discussed in this podcast. Podcast.